primary care knowledge boost, working with the marginalised with Dr Austin O'Carroll. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, today we are extremely lucky um, to have spoken with Dr. Austin O'Carroll. Um, Austin is a GP that's actually based in um, Dublin, Ireland. Um, and we, or I at least, saw him speak at the RCGP conference a couple of years ago now about um, working with uh, marginalised communities um, in primary care. Um, and it's always stuck with me. Um, and we were very, very happy that he said yes to come on and speak to us about that and some of the more recent work that he's done. Yeah, if you've not heard of him or seen any of his work, it's it's well worth checking out because he does a lot of really inspiring talks. Um, and it is really interesting, the things that he's done, which he'll explain about working with the homeless communities in Dublin. Um, he's also recently written an article for the BJGP um, and the article itself um, is, um, so we will say now that there is a swear word and there's lots of swearing during uh, this episode is so just for anyone listening. So we'll talk about his take on personality disorders and just a nod to the fact that we discussed the usefulness or not of a label of personality disorder. And here we're talking primarily about antisocial, borderline and schizotypal personality disorders. Um, and we're aware that this has been debated. It's a hot topic. So just to point out at the top that the aim of the episode isn't really to discuss the ins and outs and debate the issue from all the angles. Um, it's more to get a flavour of Austin's experience and where he's coming from and learn more about his work. Um, and it's it's really fascinating to um, to get his opinions. He's very frank um, with how he discusses um, the issues, and it's quite refreshing um, to hear his take um, on um, that, as Sarah says. Um, and we also touch on um, some of the issues that can arise um, when working in this way, but also a lot of the benefits um, that can arise um, when you work in a trauma informed um, way, both for patients and for um, the clinicians and the teams that work around them. Yeah, it's fascinating, trauma-informed care. We found it really, really interesting. We also talk about healthcare providers and clinicians who are working with these populations and the effect that this has on them. So yeah, we hope you find it as interesting um, and as thought-provoking um, as we did. Um, so we always start with an easy question, um, Austin, to get you started. So can you introduce yourself for the listeners and tell us a little bit about your background? Okay, my name's Austin O'Carroll and uh, I am a general practitioner over here in Ireland. I suppose a little bit about my background, I have a disability. I was born with thalidomide and spent most of my young child in hospital, actually. Um, I got very interested in working with people in deprivation when I was in college. I worked a lot with inner city kids. And then I subsequently also got involved in the disability movement, uh, which is a rights-based movement as opposed to a charitable approach. And... Uh, so I have been working in the inner city uh, and have been passionate about health inequalities since 1997. And uh, I probably diverted to working with marginalised populations such as homeless, uh, drug misusers and migrants and asylum seekers. Um, and I've set up a number of services for um, improving access to marginalised populations. I also set up a special GP training programme to train GPs to work in areas of deprivation with marginalised populations and also an organisation to develop GP practice in areas of deprivation. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. So much fantastic work. Not at all. It's, it's fun. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on today. We're really excited to talk to you. Um, and we're going to be talking about your take on personality disorders informed by your work with the marginalised communities. Um, so we thought we'd start by asking why these topics are important. Um, why these topics are important is because ever since I was young, I've been very conscious of the concept of labelling. I mean, I have a disability, so obviously um, it is a personal impact on me. And uh, I suppose I've always have been a very, uh, I've, been, I've, I've read a lot about labelling and I'm very aware that there can be positive sides to labelling. So obviously, if someone gets a label, it means they get services. And I think that can be very useful. But on the other side, there are very negative consequences, including stigma, uh, resulting in discrimination, uh, both outside and inside the medical world. Um, so in my area where I work with marginalised population, they are the most stigmatised group you can get. If there's any bad label going around, they are going to have it. So on every day, I come across the effects of labelling um, in terms of people experiencing the negative consequences, discrimination, exclusion uh, from societal services, but also from health services. So it's really key uh, because um, we tend in medicine to believe we don't discriminate. Uh, we are a societal institution. All societal institutions discriminate, and we do. And we have to be rigorous about not doing so because everyone needs healthcare. And the ones most likely to be discriminated against are the ones who most need healthcare. Um, so we're going to put a disclaimer up top about the language I'm about to say. <laughs> and it'll be me introducing it, <laughs> breaking this. Um, but can you talk us through your uh, recent, um, there's a recent BJGP article that we're really interested in. And you talked about what you termed the triple fuck syndrome. Yeah. Can you tell us how it came to be? Well, I suppose the triple fuck syndrome is personality disorder is something that I see on an everyday basis having negative consequences for patients. And uh, be like, for example, uh, yesterday I saw a letter from a psychiatrist who uh, saw a patient who had suicidal ideation, but had diagnosed them with a personality disorder. So said, sorry, um, that's not for us. And they, they, they discharged them because it wasn't from a, a appropriate psychiatric diagnosis. Um, and I've seen this throughout. I mean, so many of my patients are diagnosed with personality disorder. And I, I suppose all the behaviours that they display, I work with on an everyday basis. And these are the behaviours that lead them to being diagnosed with personality disorder. And so I, to me, personality disorder, uh, I mean, the triple fuck is based around the idea that society, society fucks them over firstly by, by having them born into poverty where they're more likely to experience childhood adversity. The second fuck is that then we actually blame them for the behaviours that they display as a result of that childhood adversity and, and, and poverty. So for example, so for example, they come into my surgery and if anyone talks them into in a way that sounds stern or authoritarian, they react and they blow up and they get angry and they act out. Now uh, to me, I look at them and I think of a child who was in, in a family where rules were enforced with stick and fist. And they had to learn to survive by blowing up. So they are reacting the way they've learned to survive in their family. The problem is in a health setting, at least, them to getting kicked out. Um, and we blame them. We say, you shouldn't act like that. You should be responsible. And then the other way they get, you know, they get involved in more crime and drug addiction. And these are caused by childhood adversity and poverty. Yet we blame them. We say it's a personal responsibility issue. I mean, I go into a group of medical students and I say to them, how many of you know someone with a... Um, who have a drug addiction to heroin. 
and you might find two or three out of a class of 150. I say many of you know someone who's died of heroin overdose, and you might find one who puts their hand up. You go into a primary school of eight-year-olds in the inner city, and you ask them both questions, and every single kid will put their hands up to both hands questions, because everyone knows people who've died of drug addiction, and who many know many people who are uh, on heroin, because it's so associated with poverty. So that's the second fuck, and I'm getting angry as I talk about it, because I think it, they are really fucked by it. And I know it's bad language, but it, for me, it captures what they do, what happens to them. And it also captures in their language, because that word fuck is used every day in my surgery as a normal piece of language. And I think it captures what we do to them. And then the third fuck is that we come in with a pseudoscientific diagnosis of personality disorder, which really it enrages me about the, the, ter- the term uh, tri- you know, personality disorder because like, your personality is your core. It's who you are as a person. And by saying you're disordered as a person, you are disordering your central person. There's something centrally wrong with you. And that's, you know, that on its own is a horrible thing to say about someone. But it's particularly horrible when that's not the problem. The problem is society did this to these people by cre- exposing them to poverty and childhood trauma. And that, to me, is why they really are fucked over by us. And I, I don't apologise for using the term triple fuck disorder because it captures for me what happens to them. Yeah. Um, but then if we're thinking about it in this kind of new way, um, if we take that approach, how does it inform your work around marginalised communities or people with labels of personality disorders? How can it help us to kind of understand it in this way? I, I, I much, I personally, I, I prefer to approach people who display these behaviours or features uh, from a trauma-informed care point of view. And trauma-informed care recognises that people, these people behaviours result from a background of trauma. And when you see someone coming in and displaying these behaviours, these are people who are, like in homelessness, the people who display these behaviours are the ones who are most likely to die young because they're most likely to use drugs excessively, end up in fights, end up in violence. So they're most likely to die young and the ones also most likely to be kicked out of your service. Did you ever hear the Tudor Heart Inverse Care Law? I, I've... Yeah, explain it to us that anyway, I can... I can. Okay, Tudor Heart Inverse Care Law is that those people most need to health services are least likely to get them. Okay, um, so our, our, the original law was the provision of healthcare is inversely proportioned to the need for healthcare. Yeah, and it's very true with these people. So um, it, if you approach from a trauma-informed care point of view, what you're trying to do is, first of all, is stay with the patient, be loyal to them, stay faithful to them. So that means try and not break down the relationship. So, for example, in, in, our, in my clinic every day, people act out. They, they get angry, they get mad, they're in the waiting room, they have a fight because they think someone's skipping the queue, or they come in and want to get something off me, and, they, and I say, I can't give you that, and then they get angry. So one way of approaching that is saying, you know, they come in, guy came in this morning and said... Um, he wanted tablets and I said, listen, I'm really sorry, we're not allowed to give them. And then he started giving out to me, saying, why can't you give them? And uh, saying, you know, I need them. And I'm saying, I'm really sorry, I can't give them. And then he started up and getting aggressive. And I said, listen, really sorry. Maybe we go out and chalk outside because you're getting quite angry. So he went out and he was getting angry. He walked off um, and uh, said, oh, fuck you, Lottie. Uh, excuse the language, but this is the language they use. And uh, then... Uh, but he came back a few. Uh, he came back an hour later and said, "Okay, listen. What else can you do?" So, it's about being there for the patient. And uh, I have these brilliant staff, and uh, 
They are just so adept at handling these behaviours. If someone that starts acting out, they say, oh, come on, Tommy, you just calm down. You're, you're, you're losing it a bit. Or they say, come on, go out for a walk. Or they crack a joke. I have this amazing guy, Tommy, who's uh, my practice, um, sort of main practice manager. And he, um, a few weeks ago, for example, a patient started getting angry with him and uh, said, Tommy, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to hit you. And Tommy says, he says, hold on, hold on. And Tommy then took out his two front teeth because he's false front teeth. He says, now you can hit me. And your man just said, you're mad. And he walked off. Uh, or another one, like, uh, another one happened to me was a patient came in to me and uh, didn't get what he wanted and uh, then walked out and says, you're a fucking little bollocks of a shagging cunt and uh, in front of the waiting room. And so I opened the door and I shouted out, I says, I am not little. Of course, I am little. <laughs> and uh, he laughed and he says, you're mad. And the whole baiting room laughed. So, you know, it's the use of talking down, the use of let's go for a walk, the use of humour to calm people down. I had a guy three weeks ago who actually, well, this doesn't happen often, but he actually smashed the window. And um, a week later, Tommy and, Day and uh, John, two of my workers, came to me and said, Aston, listen, we talked to him and he's very sorry he smashed the window. Will you take him back? And so that to me is their trauma informed approach because they recognize these behaviors are not this is the way he was brought up. So they then I said, listen, OK, we bring him. So we brought him back in and he's now back on treatment. Um, so does that make sense? And it's sort of it's about staying with the patient is the first thing. And the second thing is about helping them understand that their behaviors are come from their background of trauma and adversity and that the behaviors while they may have been effective when they come from their original background, they're not effective in a medical setting. Um, that they lead, those behaviours will lead to them getting excluded from the medical setting. So we need to almost try and train them in. And sometimes it means we send someone up to the hospital with them so that they can calm them down. And we send a key worker up and say, make sure he doesn't lose it or doesn't go walk off in a huff and sits with it and gets to see the doctor. So it's all that sort of... A, using of strategies to stay with the patient get the patient to stay with the care and to recognize themselves that what their addiction their behaviors come from trauma yeah and it's amazing that every single person in that chain is kind of able to to do that because i think by far the most um commonly targeted people the people that get the most anger from patients are front of front of house staff so reception staff yeah, but see, I think what to me is when people understand that it comes from, it actually makes it much easier to deal with because your initial reaction to aggression is to get angry. And it's a, it's a natural it's a natural reaction. And then when you get angry, your instinct is to blame and say, well, you know, you shouldn't be treating me that way. And um, so, but when you think, and you, if you can literally, I say, you look at them and you see the child acting out, it brings you out your more parental instincts and you can respond in a different way. The other thing we do is we sort of communicate in a different way. So, for example, uh, we often have to refuse requests for addictive medication. It's a very frequent yeah. thing. And uh, like one of the, often when people come in and say, I want Benz, I want to get some you know, sleeping tablets or thing, it's very common for a doctor to say, well, listen, sorry, we don't do those. And then the patient says, well, why don't you do those? And then you say, well, you shouldn't be asking me for that. And they say, well, why I need them? And you say, well, you sh you're putting me under pressure. You shouldn't be doing that. And the relationship breaks down. Mm. We sort of do it in a different way. We, we actually say, rather than getting into that conversation, we get into a different conversation where we say, listen, 
we're really sorry. We understand you need the benzos, but we're just not allowed to give benzos. We always blame the medical council. We always say the medical council won't allow us. And then they say, oh, but I need them. And I says, I fully understand you need them. He says, but we're not allowed to give them, but we can help you in other ways. We can help your coughs, your colds, your chest infections. And if you have other things like depression, we can help you. And they will always come back and say, but I still I need those tablets. That's what I need, nothing else. And then we do the broken record technique, which is, listen, I'm really sorry. I know you need them, but we're not allowed, but we can help you in other ways. And we're trying to give a positive spin at the end. You know, we're saying we're here for you rather than we're not here for you to change the conversation. Yeah, the I think what really struck me there was um, a wee bit earlier when you said about the patient that had broken the window um, and the approach that had been taken um, in your surgery and just contrasting that to what I would normally expect to see um, in some of the um, other surgeries that I would have worked in or known before. And it might have led to the patient being removed from um, the register and then getting stuck in the cycle where they can't get registered somewhere else. Somewhere else. And, um, and I can understand it from the surgery's point of view in that they feel like there's maybe a threat to themselves and they're acting in that way and there's no resources and and all of the normal arguments i'm just wondering if you've got any advice about surgeries that are in that mind space i think as you see i, I have to say i fully accept that people have to, have to be allowed to protect themselves and i and i fully accept that you know rules and regulations are needed however i think it's about how you apply them so for example, I accept that someone may not want to take someone back who smashed a window. But I, in our service, if there is someone who we don't take our back, which is occasional, we will refer them to another surgery. We have a deal with that other surgery that they'll take them on and we swap around. So there's a swap facility. The second thing is, uh, I, I do believe like my staff bought buy into this. And I think it's about creation of vision and mission for your staff in a way, is that... To me, as a surgeon, we sat down. So I have two surgeries. I have the homeless surgery, and I also have my own practice. And in my own practice and in the homeless surgery, we separately sat down and said, you know, what do we want to do as a service? And so we talked through the idea of having a vision and mission. And the idea is we wanted to provide health care to everybody in the area. And a lot of my staff come from the area, so they know these problems exist in the area, and they know some of these people. So I got them to buy into it. And so in a way, I think... Once you buy into it, you know, you're you're more likely to to apply, uh, you know, that type of approach. And the third thing I think is that you know, I, you know, I have a little bit skeptical. I, I remember some GP trainees. We were trying to get GP trainees in a particular place to work with homeless, and the the, the health authority at the time were raising issues about safety, and you know, as if you know, you can't expose trainees to risky behaviours. I mean, traditionally, doctors always expose themselves. Like when you think about doctors working with TB, doctors working over in Africa with the Ebola virus, they're much more at risk than someone working in inner city practice with homeless people. So doctors, it's been part of our tradition to actually to work with risk. And unfortunately, if you're working with the people most on the margins, you have to learn how to manage this particular risk. Uh, I can say that I've seen a lot of aggression. I've never been hit. I've never been physically hit. I know there are doctors who have. So I don't want to sound unsympathetic or anything. And I know there are uh, staff who have. Um, I have received verbal abuse. I don't mind that so much and I can manage that. And my staff have received verbal abuse and we've learned how to manage that. Um, but luckily, I have, we haven't experienced physical violence to ourselves. So... Uh, 
I think it's just a question of trying to buy the hearts of people into doing this type of work. Lisa, I don't know if this is answering your question clearly. I'm slightly going around it a bit. Um, but it's 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 part of a in a way your hearts have to be into the concept of trauma informed care. And in a way I think you need to discuss that everybody buys into the vision and mission. And then you need to decide how much risk you're willing to take or not take. And if you're not willing to take the risk, so if someone does act out and you want to move them, but come up with a strategy to move them to somewhere rather than just onto the streets. Yeah. You know, do and find another practice and say you've to go down there for a while or permanently. Yeah. And anyone, any medical student or um, trainee of any kind who's worked in A&E will have seen, you know, will, will have been exposed to this risk. Any night shift in A&E in particular. <laughs> can think That's right. Yeah. We put first year interns out there and they're on their own. It's there. It's just how you, how you are exposed to it in different ways, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so just with us talking there about how a lot of um, healthcare provision isn't really geared in this way um, and, and working in this way with the marginalised communities. Um, what do you think the impacts, apart from that risk that you talked about, um, what other impacts are there on the clinicians and teams that do work with them in this way? Uh, I think it means you, um, you know, uh, I was going to say resilience. I don't like the term resilience, but I'll come back to that separately. Uh, it makes you... You mean, you're, you're become, you become, I think the big problem about when you're working, how you actually become, um, um, your compassion fatigue is probably how people end up burning out. And, you know, compassion fatigue, to me, um, one of the skills I'm lucky to have, and I think it comes to the fact, I, I was in hospital uh, child, so I was in hospital a lot, and you know the way hospital children can be quite detached. And I've learned about myself that even though I have lots of friends and loads of people, I can detach quite quickly emotionally. Um, so for me, when I'm in practice, um, the days that are bad days are when I'm going through and I don't really feel anything. You don't feel any connection with the patient. I know how to go through and say, how are you doing and how are things? But if I don't feel any sympathy or things, they're the bad days. The good days are when I'm feeling sympathy and you feel sad for someone um, and you have a patient come in. Now, I'm lucky that I can feel that sadness and then immediately detach and move on to the next patient um, and be open to feeling. So... Having trauma-informed care gives you that sympathy to feel those things. And so I think it protects against compassion fatigue. And to me, is the joy of medicine is having that connection. It's having that that, that sense of empathy with someone. And um, because then you're in a real relationship and you're working with them and you know you're helping them towards... Uh, that's the hardest thing is to work with someone when you don't have sympathy for them. Yeah, so that's how I think trauma-informed care is. It allows you to keep compassion for patients, and that's what ultimately protects you from compassion fatigue and burnout. And I think it makes you enjoy your work more. So I have to say, I love working in the sector I'm working in, particularly the homeless and the marginalised. And I think everyone in my practice does. Yeah. And I think that's that, that approach makes it worthwhile. Whereas if you were coming from a different approach, that you know, say you're coming from the more charitable approach, that I'm here to help those less fortunate of me, um, and I've heard people come from that approach working with homelessness, but they would see homeless people as being irresponsible and that they need to learn more responsible behaviours. And I see them on occasions getting angry with patients and that wears them down. So I think, you know, I actually admire their intention because they really do work with people. But I think the approach, first of all, is I don't think it's the correct approach. You need a rights-based approach. But also I think it has more wear and tear on their emotional selves as well. 
Yeah, I was going to say that because I would imagine um, just from from myself, I feel like I'd find it quite exhausting to be that invested in every patient. And I don't know if some doctors would have that detached feeling just to protect them, protect themselves, not necessarily as far as compassion and fatigue, but that, yeah, it's that kind of protection to stop themselves feeling for every single patient. And I can imagine if you were dealing with this and almost every patient was this person, um, that it would it would just feel exhausting. I don't know if that is actually what you see because it sounds like you're, everyone who works in the surgery really enjoys working in this way. I, I think you, we learn as doctors to somehow protect ourselves, actually. I, I always say it's very interesting. I bring a group, which I use Philip a lot in teaching. And one of the things I use Philip is, you know, you have a group of doctors sitting around and we will discuss an incredibly sad case. And uh, in a clinical, you know, a clinical meeting, it's because it's a very sad case and no one gets upset. And that night we'll go out to a film and we'll be bawling in the aisles. And uh, um, it's the idea that the film connects to us, it, you know, the emotions, you know, we connect to us emotionally, but we've learned to protect ourselves in, in medicine. So it's about learning to get that balance where you protect yourself that you're not overwhelmed but you still have the empathy. So, and I do think a lot of doctors learn that balance and it's quite a, you know, I, I think it's quite a, a, an interesting and, and complex interaction. Um, and maybe we don't pay it enough attention in medicine. How do you preserve empathy while being able to detach as well? You need to do both. Mm. And one of the things that strikes me is um, hearing from people who have struggled with it, um, working with people who they're trying to help, feel like they're trying to help but the sort um the actual resources around them or the services that are being offered to them are uh, substandard um or they're getting lots of rejection and like you say if you hadn't sent a key key worker with somebody into hospital then they might um not get the services that they need and that kind of feeling of i think they sort of I've heard it in sort of COVID times being called like moral injury when you feel like you're trying to help but you can't. Yeah. Um, I think that's yeah. a, quite an interesting side of it. I mean, clearly a lot of things that you're doing are extremely proactive, so I suspect that's mitigating. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that a lot of the things I think we do to make interventions make a difference. But, you know, you're going back to the old idea that health is a lot of times socially determined, particularly for the patients we're working with. Yeah. And, you know... A lot of times it's stuff that are way outside our control. And I think it's important to understand social determinants so we understand the limits of what we can achieve. Um, but uh, and then the second part is where we can make a difference. I think we can make a difference in, in, in health. You know, yes, we can't address the issues of education, of trauma, etc. But we do help patients hang in there or we help patients get out. So I, I would see a lot of people we've had to get out of homelessness. I would also see a lot of people that we helped who stayed in homelessness, you know, who aren't going to get out of homelessness, but we've just helped them and we've been with them on their journey. And then there's a lot of patients who've died, young patients who've died, who we didn't help at all and we couldn't inter prevent that just inevitable almost um, descent. So, um, but I think the frustration you're talking about is where we are able to make an intervention, but the services around us are not helping us make that intervention because they're not there's, there's there's problems with the services, and that is very frustrating, um, and uh, I suppose yeah that is frustrating. I suppose I'm lucky that I'm in a position where I'm involved in developing services. So, for example, I had forty people who I sent for hepatitis C to the hospital, and twenty three missed their first appointment, sixteen their seconds, and only two completed treatment. But I'm in a position that I went to the HSE and said to them, "Listen, this does not work." 
And then we set up a service where we set it up in our own clinic that the hep C was provided there and that became addressed. So I am in a position that I can address these deficits. Um, and uh, that is part of what I enjoy doing. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, yeah, I agree, Sarah, with what you're saying. Just in terms of the, I can see the surgery becoming um, a really good and welcoming place, and 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 have this trauma informed care. But just then thinking about the wider system and the frustrations that there might be whenever you do have to refer on or send on, and they don't act in the same way, it almost feels like it needs to be a whole system change um, to make a true difference. Well, just an example is I I went through my post this morning, and there was eight, which is regular. Uh, letters from doctors saying that the patient didn't turn up for their appointment. Like for years, homeless people haven't turned up for appointments. Like it's, it's, I call it duh medicine. Why do you send an appointment to someone who's homeless? One is not only do they not have an address or they probably have moved from hostel, but secondly, they don't keep um, appointments. They don't have regular schedules. They don't have diaries. They don't have transport. It doesn't work, but we don't change it because, um, you know, if it was middle-class people who, who were not getting appointments, there would be a thing to change, but we don't change it. So that is something, you know, as I talk, it's one thing I've been wanting to crack for a while. We need to change the way we do appointments, Mm. as an example, of the types of things you're talking about, Sarah. Um, and then we've we've talked we've kind of gone around and uh, often a little thread there from what our framework was, but um, there's just one question we still had written down um, about because we've talked about the the kind of impacts on clinicians and teams from working in this way in this trauma informed way. Um, but do you have any examples of um, how it's affected patient outcomes to work in that way? Yeah, for example, um, okay, I think of actually I got to give you a particular story, and it's got pros and cons. We'll see what you think. Uh, we had two patients who were addicted to alcohol, cocaine and heroin, sleeping rough in an inner city park for seven, six years. And there was one particular um, freezing cold day that they actually went out. Uh, it was a Sunday and they their tent was blown over. It was raining and they were getting very cold, but all services were closed because it was a Sunday. So they ended up in casualty because he became hypothermic. And as they were cutting off uh, his his clothes um the doctor and nurse turned to her and said this is disgusting the condition you both got yourselves into now when he recovered they both swore they were not going to hospital unless they were absolutely uh, dying now subsequently we set up mobile health unit that was run by gp trainees young gp trainees and a few months later the two of them went into that unit because they heard you could get free medication and they had a cough so they went in and they got chatting to the gp trainee and the GP trainee engaged them and then said to them, listen, would you not get your addictions treated? So they went, she got them to go down to this amazing doctor, Clinity Kelly, uh, who then sent them up to us. And we got them onto uh, OP substitute therapy. Dublin uh, Simon got them onto alcohol treatment. They got them an apartment. They got them onto a pre-university course. And both of them did the pre-university course. Now, this is where the story diverges. He... Um, as they were about, they both got, got places in university. But just before they were to take them up, he got really, really nervous and became very anxious and overpoweringly anxious. And essentially had a nervous breakdown. And uh, he couldn't take up the place. And she took up the place. And uh, over the next few years, she actually sort of moved on in a way. She actually uh, moved out, but stayed, visited him every day. But she moved into her own place. And... Uh, now, the very sad thing is uh, two years, three years later, he committed suicide. And to me, that's his childhood trauma getting him. You know, that he 
felt he couldn't actually succeed. He ultimately felt he was a failure. Um, to me, and, and I suppose the story is showing how, you know, sticking with these people behaviours gives them options. Now, I always go back to that, that doctor in, in casualty and I say, you know, if he just pro- approached that from a trauma-informed care point of view, one is um, he would have had a much better outcome for the patients. But two, it would have a much better outcome for that doctor and that nurse because they entered medicine to help people and change people. And I don't blame them. Everyone holds stigma. We're all social beings. And if you're going to get stigma concentrated, it's going to be in a casualty, you know, where everything is, the, the mayhem casualty will, will, will concentrate stigma. So I don't blame them because if you don't blame the people, you can't blame the people who are stigmatizing either. You have to understand where they're coming from. But they lost that opportunity to, you know, change those people's lives and to, to, get, to give them an alternate route. Like, I mean, even though there's a bad outcome for that lad, it was still the right thing to do. Um, so I don't know if that's, that sort of story answers your question in a way. As it gives, It's an example of how, but I would have frequent examples of people who uh, we acted out um, in, our, in our practice um, and we stuck with them and they're now in their own accommodation and um, have actually managed to address their addiction issues and their and their, their, their homelessness issues. I'd have many people who uh, would have those behaviours who have been with me since 1997, still homeless, um, but they're still with us and they're hanging in there. And I sadly would have many yeah. people like that too who probably either ended up dead from overdose or violence or in prison. No, it's true. But like you say, even um, even if it's not, fully kind of life-changing just um kind of building that trust in the healthcare profession is bound to have a, a positive long-term outcome in terms of them having better health for longer than they would have if they'd gone anywhere else well i should maybe not understand like i mean we we do both general medicine and, and general practice but also opiate substitution treatment and we've started probably over God, 700 people on, 800 people on opiate substitution treatment and 80% of those who go on to treatment, their accommodation improves within a month or two. And almost every rough sleeper we've had started has actually ended up in accommodation. We've got many people, our mobile health unit has gone to rough sleepers and taken many rough sleepers who've been rough sleeping for over six or seven years off the streets. And the way it happened was that the rough sleepers wouldn't engage with the outreach workers Um but they'd go into the medical unit because they wanted to medical things. And the outreach workers would sit in the medical unit and while they were in the waiting room, they'd engage them and manage to persuade them to get into accommodation. Um, and I, I remember myself going out to people, I remember one particular person, for example, who we found, he was a man in his 60s who was living in an igloo that had been built by a parent for his two kids during a snowfall. And he was doubly incontinent. And uh, when we saw him, he was lying on the ground and he couldn't get up. And we thought he was going to die because of the snow. And we went out three nights in a row. This is a guy who'd been eight years sleeping rough. And uh, after three nights, he agreed. I've literally gone out and just chatting to him and buying him tea and coffee. Um, he eventually went in and he's still in a nursing home as we speak. So um, so I'd maybe underplay this, but a lot of successes. Yeah, yeah massive amount of successes. Um, so what changes would you like to see in the future? both either small scale or larger scale? I, I would like uh, all, for example, um, everyone should be infor- uh, thought about trauma uh, and trauma-informed care. I think everyone should be thought about the social determinants of health and have an understanding of these effects. I think we should stop using the term personality disorder. I think we should recognise that these are people who are deeply traumatised 
and we should develop services to respond to their needs. Services that will stick with them, that are faithful to them. Uh, I believe in two concepts um, in medicine that we need to bring. Uh, one is welcomeness. That is that we are welcome, we welcome everyone uh, into our thing and we show, and some people don't feel welcome, so you have to tell them they're welcome. So, for example, you may have to show you're LGBTI friendly and you may have to show and get a reputation for being friendly to people who are difficult to deal with. So we need to be welcoming and we need to be faithful then to people. And med- you know, general practice is strength, is faithfulness. You know, we are faithful. That's what you call it, long-term care, continuity of care. That's faithfulness. And we need just to extend that faithfulness to those people who are the most difficult to deal with and learn the skills. So uh, I think everyone should be thought about trauma-informed care. We need to um, basically change the way we perceive these people and we need to develop services that actually are of help to them and, and, and support them. And if there's any interventions that help them with their problems, medical or otherwise, I will be a full supporter. Yeah, thank you so much, Austin. That was absolutely amazing. So it's absolutely wonderful to be able to speak to Austin. I know that we, um, like I said at the beginning, he his talk at the RCB conference has stuck with me for a while, but we didn't quite think that we'd ever be able to get him on the podcast. So we were just so chuffed whenever he agreed to come on. Um, and it definitely lived up to my expectations. Um, what did you What did you take away, Sarah? Yeah, I think um, too often we forget how little services are geared up to help the people that really need it most. And it's through talking to people who work in really the difficult situations that the sort of deep end type medicine, the health inequalities, that they're really tackling health inequalities. And it makes you remember why you got into this job (laughs) and just think about all of that need and really refreshes your feeling of being able to try and engage patients that are difficult and can be that awful term heart sink but you know some of the most challenging behaviors I'm definitely somebody who um, really avoids conflict and gets very frightened very easily so but it's it's really interesting the whole point of working in a trauma-informed way and destigmatizing and you know and actually thinking really about the human rather than trying to pathologize or label things really unhelpfully yeah I think I think his take um where he started off and, and the conversation obviously meandered a little bit but his take on um personality disorder and obviously the recent article and things and just um the his whole argument um for why we shouldn't be using personality disorder um was just really striking um and like you say not pathologizing these things and not um, making it feel like the blame is on the patient um and also just the um the take on the fact that um by doing by calling it because I've written it down he said that a personality is someone's core and by saying that they have a personality disorder is saying that they're disordered as a person um, and when really you look at the the root causes of this it's it's not necessarily them to blame it's the situation that they've been born into and brought up in um, so I just I just thought it was a very refreshing look at it yeah the societal blame really that it shifts it and um, labeling it it shifts it from the society's problem to the person's problem yeah I thought yeah. that was really interesting um, and also that that doesn't dishearten him from tackling it <laughs> you know that no. that when you make it a bigger problem it's not necessarily uh, an impossible problem it's just approaching it in a in a different way in a way that's going to be an individual approach to people that will work and yeah so many brilliant outcomes for the things that he's done yeah 
Exactly. And even just some simple, well, I say simple, it's not very simple. That's um, quite reductionist of me um, because it does take um, a lot of um, a lot of time, empathy, compassion and resources. Um, but um, that being um, loyal to a patient um, mm. and maintaining that relationship, um, he said, helping them to understand the origin of their problems and showing them that the behaviours might not be acceptable in a health setting. Mm. Um, those um, combination can actually I would I would say change a person's life um, in terms of how they interact with healthcare mm-hmm. and if they're interacting and trusting the healthcare provider that they're seeing they they're more likely to engage longer term they're more likely to um take part in those like health improvement activities they're more likely to look after themselves and hopefully live longer and and better lives yeah and um practical advice about how to turn potentially negative consultations that might be about trying to um opioid seeking behavior or things like that um and actually just putting it in a completely different way and then putting the positive spin on it as well in terms of then trying to aim for engagement longer term um i thought that was amazing as well yeah so many so many really important tips there yeah yeah um, so yeah, I think we could probably keep talking about this all day, but we will need to keep <laughs> yes. the episode to time. Um, so um, if you'd like to get in contact with us, um, there are a couple of different ways you can do so. Um, and we'll put all of the links in the episode description as normal. Um, if you want to get in touch with us with um, feedback in particular, we'd really appreciate that because um, we do take that on board and we do try to make changes and find episodes and um, guests based on that. Um, and thank you for every t- and thank you to everybody that has done that so far. Yeah, there's been some really interesting feedback that's been quite thought-provoking so thank you all till next time on primary care knowledge boost this podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of gp excellence wiganborough ccg greater manchester training hub and the gp fellowship program as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.